Old Testament lesson is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. We are reading verses 20 through 46. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the numbers of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of flour. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was a little tepid. 
So I'm going to give you a redo opportunity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There we go. Let's pray. Father, we do come with thankfulness in our hearts. Mighty acts and mighty deeds revealed to us. Your word, some of it is truth. It is for us. And God, we ask that you would seal it to our hearts today. That you take us into all truth by the power of your spirit. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. When Melissa and I moved to Jacksonville in 2014, we noted that the relatively flat topography of the state of Florida was home to a rather large cycling community. It was common, especially on the weekends, to encounter large clubs of cyclists in the city. I began to note variations amongst these cyclists in their responses to the motor vehicles with which they shared the road. Some were extremely respectful of the laws, while others, you could say, were somewhat more flexible. (laughs) It's this latter community that was more flexible that I also noted had a particular persuasion towards their rights to the road. In fact, sometimes they chose to ride in the middle of lanes, insisting on not allowing any cars to pass. I had one encounter like this in my own neighborhood. As I worked my way around the cyclist in order to get the work, I hear someone yell, hey, I live here too. I wanted to respond that that was not in dispute, what the discussion needed to be about. But in talking to some cyclists, I could also understand their sensitivity. They're quite vulnerable. I have a friend who cycles, and I asked him, have have you ever had an encounter with a car that was scary? And he said, oh, no, very calmly and casually. He said, I've been hit twice. It's like, what? Your wife still allows you to do this? Like, you got hit by a car? How did you survive it? So I understand they have their desire to have their road rights respected. But then I began to note this something else, particularly about the more salty cyclist, that they wanted their rights to the road, but at intersections, places like four-way stop signs, roundabouts, and even traffic lights. They didn't want the rules of the road to apply to them at all. Know that the cyclists oftentimes, especially the salty ones, like to blow through traffic lights. They like to go in mass through stop signs. That they wanted all the rights of the road that vehicles have, but then they didn't want to have to follow all the rules of the road. And so the question started to occur to me, which one is it going to be? Are we going to behave like cars and share the rights of the road, or are we going to behave like children riding our bikes through neighborhoods, cutting across everything where no rules apply? Elijah asked Israel a similar question in 1 Kings 18. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? At the close of 1 Kings 16 and 17, We encounter a church that has been infiltrated, a church that has been compromised, a church that has been taken over by the culture around it. Dynasty after dynasty has repeated the sins of Jeroboam, 
Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribes, had constructed and fabricated two golden bulls, a stalled one in the north in Dan and one in the south in Bethel. And this was an ongoing sin for northern Israel. But now with Ahab coming to the throne, not only did we have the sins of Jeroboam continuing, but now we have Ahab excelling and going further, pushing the envelope. He marries a Phoenician bride, and he incorporates her gods and goddesses into the worship of Israel. At this point, Israel is in the world, but Israel is also thoroughly of the world. They were conversant with the intellectual fads, the ethical laxity, and the spiritual trends of their day. As Elijah says, they were limping between opinions, compromised, infiltrated, taken over. And friends, this is the constant threat for the church as the idols of our own age vie for our affections and vie for attention. And the question that we have to ask and to answer this morning is how does the church stay true to herself and not limp between opinions? How do we avoid the compromise that we read about here in 1 Kings? What exactly are we to do? And as we read 1 Kings 18, we see three things that we're to grasp in order to avoid this limping between opinions. First, that we must identify the problem of idolatry. And second, we must own the fruit of idolatry, what it looks like when it takes hold in our lives. And third, we have to embrace the remedy for idolatry. And so ahead of coming to the Lord's table this morning, let's just look at each of these briefly. First, we must identify the problem of idolatry. And the argument here is that to avoid limping between opinions requires that we understand the problem of the idols that we worship, that they are particularly deficient in certain ways. And that means that we must deconstruct. That means that we must unmask. That means that we must expose idols for what they are. And in our passage, we see explicitly what the problem of the idols is. And that problem is that they cannot deliver on what they specifically promised to provide. In Canaanite mythology, Baal was the god of the storm. And so he was the one who was responsible for giving and sustaining life. Water, of course, being necessary to the agricultural cycles of the ancient world. But it was believed that in the fall each year that Baal would rise from the dead after hiding for several months and bring the storm clouds across the Mediterranean onto the land and that he would give fertility to the world by sending rain. So in 1 Kings 17, when God announces through the prophet Elijah that there is going to be a drought. This was not an arbitrary punishment. God was actually cutting off what Baal claimed to provide. It was a direct challenge. What Baal claimed to supply, God was now going to shut down and demonstrate that he was the one who controlled the rains and the storm. 
This goes a step further in 1 Kings 18 now, when Elijah instructs Ahab to assemble all the prophets of Baal, and he was to bring all the prophets also of the consort goddess Asherah on Mount Carmel for contest. And in verses 23 and 24, Elijah lays out the terms of the contest. Listen to them again. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. If Baal was the god of the storm, then surely he could send forth a bolt of lightning. We have inscriptions from the ancient world of the god Baal holding lightning in his hand. Again, a direct contest, asking whether Baal truly had this power. And the bolt of lightning would come and consume the sacrifice and demonstrate Baal's authority and dominion. However, despite all of their best efforts, all-day cultic liturgies, dancing and slashing, praying fervently, working themselves up in ecstatic fervor, there was nothing. In verse 29, we read the stinging summary. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The verse is emphatic. The word no being repeated in its form three times. No voice. No answer. No response. Elijah mocks them. He asks some questions rather sarcastically. Perhaps Baal is out entertaining himself. Perhaps Baal is indisposed in the restroom. Perhaps he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's just fallen asleep. There was no answer. There was no voice. There was no response. And friends, this is what we're invited to see. The things that we transfer our trust to in this life, our idols, the things that we put before God, the things that we seek our wholeness and our well-being in outside of God, that they cannot deliver on what they promise. They fail us and they will, will fail us. We can idolize our outward appearance, finding our well-being and impressing everyone else. But the true thing is that it will fade. It goes away. Age happens. We can idolize our financial security. We can find our well-being in what we possess, what we save, what we own. But we all also know it's inherently unstable, that it's not safe. We can idolize our lifestyle finding our wholeness in a carefree life of luxury and entertainment with no ethic really that goes beyond our personal happiness. We'll receive the applause of many, 
but we also know it's always ephemeral, that it's a mirage, and we chase one thing to the next. We can fabricate our own version of Jesus. We can piece together the parts of him that we like and find appealing and kind of shield out the things that make us uncomfortable, ignore them. But we also know this is no Jesus at all. Because, friends, when we look to those type things to deliver us, when we look for wholeness and well-being, when we transfer our trust to that place, there's no voice, there's no answer, there's no response, because it's empty. And this is the great problem of idolatry, that, yes, it soothes something in us, and we can be loyal to it. But in that ultimate test, in that hour of invocation and calling, in that moment of desperation, there's silence from the heavens because these gods are impotent. They have no power. Second thing that we're invited to see here, though, it's not only the problem of the idols, but also we're invited to own the fruit of idolatry. This is captured for us in particular in the character Ahab. In verse 17, Ahab meets Elijah, just ahead of where we started reading. Ahab is the king of the northern tribes. He's been searching for Elijah. Elijah has been hidden away carefully, actually in Phoenicia, in the homeland of Baal. But now he is back. And when he meets Ahab, Ahab says particular words to him. He calls him the troubler of Israel. It's a unique title, and it's important for us to chase it down because the title is only used in one other place in the entirety of Scripture. And it actually comes to us from Joshua 7. And if you're familiar with that story in Joshua 7, it's where the nation of Israel is entering into the promised land, and they encountered the city of Jericho, and they were to destroy it completely. Nothing was to be taken. And yet one man, a man named Achan, took some of the possessions that were to be devoted to destruction, and he hid them. He acted on his own accord, and he violated the very commandment of God, and then Israel is defeated, and everything is in chaos and disarray. And they were told it's because there's a troubler of Israel. Someone has troubled the church Someone has defied the commandment of God. Someone has ignored what he said and gone their own way and acted in their own wisdom. And Ahab accuses Elijah of being the troubler of Israel. He was the one responsible for this drought. He was the one who had brought all this hardship on the people, all this decay, all this death. Elijah was the one who had brought the trouble. Of course, Elijah turns the table back because it was Ahab in all of his Baalism in all of his indifference to the word of God to all of, in all of his lack of concern for what God had said. And so his accusation against Elijah, it reflects this fundamental misunderstanding of the real problem. Ahab is blind. And friends, this is the fruit of idolatry. Ahab is self-deceived. 
This is the power of an idol. Where Ahab has abundant evidence around him. It's all pointing in one direction. And yet he still can't see himself. And he can't see reality around him clearly. Rather what he does is that he denies. And he attacks. And he reverses the roles of victim and offender. He's self-deceived. He can't see the truth. He can't see himself. And friends, this is the very frightening power that our idols can gain over us. We submit ourselves to them, and then they blind us to the truth, no matter how clear it may be. God had told Ahab that he was going to dry up the heavens, that they were going to become like bronze, that there would be no rain because of the trouble that he had brought. And yet still, even having heard that, Ahab hardens himself and calls Elijah the troubler of Israel. And friends, we can see this in our own lives. We see it in the lives of others in the grip of addictions, the patterns of compulsive behaviors, where we deny and we attack and we shift the blame and make ourselves the victim rather than the offender all in the name of protecting and preserving something that we don't want to lose. And this is the fruit of idolatry, what it brings into our life. We become like Ahab, self-deceived. But finally, in 1 Kings 18, we also see that we have to embrace the remedy for idolatry. And God's remedy in answer to all the idolatry of the church here, it's straightforward and it's disturbing. It's a word that we find ourselves in the 21st century slightly allergic to because God's answer to all of this idolatry, it's judgment. That is that God remedies idolatry by bringing that sin in which we transfer our trust away from him to other things, the way that he remedies that is to bring it into judgment. This is especially captured for us at the end of the passage in verse 40. The prophets of Baal, after their God gave them no voice, gave them no response, was completely indifferent to their call. Elijah marches them off, to the, off the mountain into the valley and they are brought into judgment. They're executed. They held fast to their empty God and were judged. It's a picture of future and final judgment. Difficult. And so you may ask, well, is there any hope then? If idolatry is just simply transferring your trust from something away from God to something else, and finding your wholeness and well-being there, then is there any hope for anyone? And Romans 1 gives the answer that there is no hope, that all of us are complicit in this idolatrous factory, that we've all participated in that transfer, and we worshiped and served creatures and created things rather than the creator himself, that we're all complicit in this sin. And then you ask, is this really God's only response to it? 
because there's no hope then for anyone. Haven't we all engaged? Is there any other remedy? And friends, the answer comes back that no, there is no other remedy. That the only remedy is judgment. Judgment is the only response. God's justice requires it. This relational fracture that has taken place when we say he's not sufficient, when he is sufficient, when we say he cannot provide and we look to other things to provide, that this is a relational cleavage. It's defiance. It's operating in autonomy. It's going our own way. It's saying that we are the judge of good and evil and that we know best. God's justice requires that the violation of his law brings judgment. He can't overlook it. But this is where we also have to consider what happens on Mount Carmel. Because God does display his power on the top of the mountain, on an altar. He sends forth a lightning bolt, fire from heaven, And the fire consumes the altar. It's important to consider what was laid upon the altar. And we also learned that it was late in the evening, the time of the evening sacrifice. And there was a bull, a blameless victim laid there upon the altar. A blameless sacrificial victim on the altar. And the fire from heaven consumes it. And friends, this was an enactment inside of the apostate church of the offerings that were made at the temple in Jerusalem. And that an offering, a sacrificial victim, was judged in the place of Israel. And so yes, the way out of idolatry is judgment. But it doesn't mean judgment necessarily upon our own heads. That the way out of idolatry is judgment our sins being imputed to another. And this is what happens to the bull on the mountain, that he stands in your place. He stands in my place because this bull is none other than a prefiguring of Jesus, directing us and pointing us to the one who is to come, who came and bears our sins, who goes into our place because of all of our idolatrous hearts and all the transfer that's taken place. All the things that we've done in which we've betrayed God and turned against him. That yes, it's through judgment. But it's a judgment that someone else has received for us. A blameless victim. And this is what happens on Carmel. Is the victim is consumed. Consumed. And he dies in the place of Israel. Just as Jesus dies in the place of the church. His blamelessness becomes ours. Our sins become his. And friends, this is the remedy that we have to embrace. It's the only escape for the idolatrous hearts the heart that's prone to run off to other things. And it's only in seeing the Lord Jesus in his cross and his death on our behalf that we then turn. Elijah prays in verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me. 
that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned back their hearts. We don't turn our hearts. God induces us to turn. God induces us to turn through the sacrificial victim, through Jesus displayed, through the preaching of the cross. And friends, we embrace that in a very simple way. You note the elaborate liturgy that was played out by the worshipers of Baal all day, dancing and crying out, supplications, even self-harm, attempting to awaken their God that he would come up over the horizon, that lightning would flash, that the rains would come. Elijah steps forward and says a short prayer. He hadn't been doing it all day. He doesn't have a sophisticated liturgy, but he has faith. And friends, this is the way that the remedy becomes ours. It's looking in faith to the sacrificial victim, the one who stands in our place, the one who takes our sins, who receives our judgment on his own head. This is how it plays out. The prophets of Baal, they had to enact certain cultic liturgies. But friends, this is not the way the gospel works. The gospel does not work saying, practice this particular spiritual technique and I will bless you. No, that's not the way of the gospel. Do this good deed and I will bless you. No, that too is not the way of the gospel. Be kind and loving to everyone around you. Just be considerate. No, that's not the way of the gospel. It may be a fruit of it, but it's not the way we enter into it. The entrance, the gospel says, is we look to the victim in faith. We look to our Lord Jesus who bears our sins on our behalf. And we entrust ourselves to him, recognizing that there's no other refuge. There's no other place to hide. There's no other safe corner. That the idols are empty. They have no voice. They have no answer. That they cannot deliver us. And they will ignore us on our day of need. But there is a true and living God who gives himself in our place. And he does have a voice. And he does respond. And he responds in judgment that becomes mercy because he stands in our place. And so friends, for the church that struggles not to limp between opinions, where we know all of our weakness and we feel our divided hearts and we know that we're prone to run after other things and to transfer our trust, we have to do that hard work of deconstructing our idols, seeing just how impotent they are. We have to look at ourselves and consider carefully the fruit of idolatry, seeing all the silliness of Ahab, deflecting, turning himself into the victim when he's the one who's guilty. We have to look at ourselves and examine our own character. And then, friends, preeminently, the way out of all of this limping is we have to see the remedy. The remedy of our Lord Jesus going to the cross 
where fire comes down from heaven on his head on your behalf. And he willingly receives it. A blameless, innocent victim, the one man not to sin in your place that he can extend his righteousness to you and that you can place your sins upon him. Friends, this is the remedy to idolatry. It's simply the grace of God given to us in Jesus. So let's pray. Our gracious and our heavenly Father, you're the one who lives in the heavens, enthroned above all. And we confess that we are not worthy to gain an audience with you. We know our our idolatrous hearts. But you in your great mercy sent your son, Jesus. And it's in him that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of your kingdom. And it's in him that we've been granted the privilege of prayer. Being assured that you, our gracious father, give only good things to us, your children, as we come and ask as we come and seek, as we come and knock in Jesus' name. And so we pray for the hallowing of your name throughout all the earth. In all places everywhere, may your name, a holy and a worthy name, be exalted above all others. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory forever and ever. Long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the name of Jesus Christ to your honor and praise. And in particular, we pray for our mission partner, Gethsemane Garden Christian Center on Mampongo Island in Kenya. We ask that you bless the students and the orphans as they seek to know you and your world. Grant them to excel in their studies. May they grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with you and all people. Provide for every one of their needs. Train them up and send them out into your world for your own glory. And we also pray for our world, asking that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We remember before you the nations of the earth, the peoples of every tribe and tongue, asking that those estranged from you would come to know the truth of salvation, which is to know you, the only true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Thank you for your gracious and undeserved work in our own lives, granting us eyes to see and giving us ears to hear the gospel. We pray for our neighbors, pray for our coworkers, We pray for our friends and family who do not know you or who have forgotten you. Illumine their minds, grant them faith through the preaching of your word. We also pray for the children and youth of our church, asking that these kids, these students, loved by you may profess faith in your son, knowing all that he has done for them and for their salvation. Teach them to hope in you. Raise up a faithful generation of your church from Christ's church that will rejoice in you all their days. And we pray that you multiply your grace to us, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Renew us by your spirit to obey you truly and fully. 
following your commandments without contradiction and without negotiation. Keep us from limping between opinions. Purge from within us our lesser loves that draw us to follow our own wisdom. Teach us to renounce our own wills and all the desires of the flesh that we may walk in the love and fear of your name. And in the midst of our mortality, we are mindful of our dependence upon you, the giver of all good gifts. Truly in you we live and we move and we have our being. You open your hand and satisfy our every need. And so give us this day our daily bread, providing what is needful for our welfare and for our maintenance. Teach us to be thankful for your good gifts that sustain us. Direct us to be generous towards those without. We especially pray for the broader community on Mongfongo Island that is suffering from a severe drought, asking that you, the giver and sustainer of all life, asking you to send rain to refresh and renew the earth, provide for their needs. And we are reminded that we cannot hide our sins and we cannot conceal our faults from you. There are no secrets hidden before your sight. And so we acknowledge that we are poor sinners, full of weakness and failure, compromised with our idols. We constantly grow faint and go astray from your way. Our guilt is great. But even greater than our guilt are your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us, your mercies that have been poured out through the cross of your son, Jesus. Truly, you are a good and a forgiving God, abounding in steadfast love and mercy to all who call upon you. And so create in us a clean heart, O oh God. Lead us in the way of repentance. Teach us to do your will. And in the knowledge of these great mercies, we ask that you transform us, teaching us to forgive those who have sinned against us, Free us to forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart. Keep us from requiring of others what you do not require of us. May we not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Give us grace, O oh God. In the midst of this life, in which we are assailed by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil, we ask that you sustain us by your power that we not stumble in the weakness of our flesh. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And we particularly remember our brothers and sisters within our church who suffer in body and mind today. We remember Barb Day dealing with resurgent cancer. Sue Forsyth struggling with back pain. Elizabeth Garnett suffering from stage four brain cancer. Garganius also suffering from cancer. Wayne Noble and Bill Yates struggling with Parkinson's disease. We pray that you, the God of all comfort, cheer these, our brothers and our sisters, with your consolations and comforts through your son, Jesus Christ. Remind them that you will never leave them nor forsake them, that even in the valley of the shadow of death, the greatest trials of life, that there you are with us never leaving us, never forsaking us. Strengthen us by your spirit. Clothe us with your armor to resist all temptations 
and to persevere that we may at last triumph in your kingdom, to feast with the King of kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. 